James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19 is where we'll be. Um, before my wife and I moved here to Greenville to plant Integrity Church, we uh, were in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was serving in a church there doing a residency to know and learn about church planting. Um, but I had a full-time job, and my full-time job was I was a, um, a vendor for Home Depot stores in the greater Atlanta area. And so I would travel around to different Home Depot stores in downtown, uptown Atlanta, midtown Atlanta, and even to the northern parts of Georgia mountains, uh, where there's just some good old folks there. You know, so I would, I would see a mixture of inner city people and just people like way out in the sticks, right? And I would meet all kinds of people from all kinds of different walks of life. You would not believe some of the conversations I had in all of those situations because I was just running into so many different types of people. Um, but one of the most significant ones that I would, uh, one of the most significant people that I met during that time was a lady who worked in the Athens, Georgia Home Depot store. And I would see her every Friday morning, and she was an old hippie lady that had lived in the Atlanta area for some 30, 40 years. And I would talk to her a lot about just culture and religion and the gospel and music. And man, when any time we started talking about music, I was just blown away at the amount of music that she, she just knew. She just had an incredible wealth of knowledge when it came to music. And so we just got on the, on the conversation of what's the best concert that you've ever been to? And so she asked me first and I told her, I said, well, it would have to be uh, when I saw you two in, uh, in Atlanta and I saw them with, do the How to uh, Dismantle the Atomic Bomb. It was that tour. Um, and it was an incredible, incredible show. Ne- never seen anything like it. And I started to tell her about it like, and then she was not really amused at my story because she said, I've probably seen them a hundred times. And then she said, I actually know you two. And I was like, all right, this lady is Athens, Georgia. I, you know, the 70s and 80s weren't good to you. We get it. You've had a couple of acid trips. You think you met them, um, but you've never met them before. And so, but then she would start to tell me stories about her and Adam Clayton, the bass player, hung out, and Larry Mullen, the drummer, they would hang out, and she, she would have these jokes with the edge, and I was like, all right. You know, and so I just started to kind of, in my mind, just write her off and do the awkward nod, and, and you know, every, every week I'd see her, and she'd tell me these stories, and I'd be like, ha, 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 yeah, that happened, and so I think she realized and, and started to catch on that I wasn't believing her, and so about a month or two in, after we'd had that conversation, she brought in this gigantic, old, rusty, like dusty um, scrapbook. And she opens it up, and it's all these backstage passes to these incredible, like, epic U2 tours, like War and Boy. I mean, if you're, you don't know who they are, that's fine, um, but you're missing out. Um, <laughs> And these great, great, great shows. And so I was, I was just blown up. But I was like, you know, you can get those on eBay. I mean, seriously. She could look that up on eBay. And we go through several pages. And then there's pictures of her with uh, Adam Clayton at a restaurant. And her and Larry, the drummer, at, um, at an, an airport and in a hotel room. And there are all these, these parties together. And then I was like, oh, oh. And I was looking real closely. Did she Photoshop it in some way? And she didn't. There were old, old pictures. And then I get back to the back, and I, I look at the very back page. I find this old Christmas card, and it was just telling her how thankful they were for her and her friendship, and they just want to tell her Merry Christmas, and they hoped that she got the gift. And then I look, and it was Bono, 
and Allie, his wife, just saying, we love you, we miss you, we hope to, and I was like, you know, like, and uh, wow. And so I just started to ask her tons and tons of questions. And you would see my, my eagerness to talk to her had expanded tremendously just from the scrapbook, from me being a skeptic to her maybe, maybe thinking she's like a crazy, like former drug head lady to like now she's like a scholar, right? And she knows everything about everything because she knows Bono and you too. And she has this friendship with him that has continued on throughout the years. And so I... What I noticed right away was I saw that she was really a genuine person when I saw the evidence of the things that she claimed out of her mouth. I saw something in her life that really showed me and proved to me that what was coming out of her mouth was true. I saw real, uh, concrete evidence. And what you'll see in James chapter 2 is James is hoping for the exact same thing in this church. James is talking to these believers in Jesus Christ who had been persecuted in tremendous ways. They had moved in 10 years, uh, there's been 10 years that has happened through tremendous persecution, their life being threatened, and now they're living in displaced locations all around uh, the region of Jerusalem and Israel. And so now James is writing this book to them and he's hoping that they have genuine, real, authentic faith. And meaning what comes out of their mouth is actually the way that they live their lives. The Jesus Christ that is coming out of their lips or coming from their lips is the Jesus Christ that they see displayed in the way they live their lives and how they show love and generosity to others. And so what we're going to see, and the big idea is that we'll see this morning, is really how these two ideas of faith and work relate to one another. Because I want to argue they are friends. They are really one in the same because they come from how we love and cherish the gospel. So James chapter 2, and I'll start with uh, verse 14, um, and we'll finish up in verse 19 this morning. Read with me if you will. James chapter 2, verse 14. The word of God says this. What good is it, my brothers? See, this is his classic line. He talks about we're family. This is my brothers, my sisters. We're all a family here this morning if we're believers in Jesus. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Here's his question. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So James gives this scenario here of faith and works, and he's talking about how they relate. Now, this is historically one of the most controversial places in all of Scripture, these words that we just read from James. Uh, The great reformer, Martin Luther, um, in the 1500s, he did incredible things for the gospel. I mean, honestly, the reason why we're sitting here today is because some of the things that Martin Luther put in place when he really warred against the Roman Catholic Church, as the Roman Catholic Church was, were promoting a works-based salvation, and Martin Luther, a former Catholic monk, stands up and says, no, it's, we are not saved by works, we're saved by faith, alone in Jesus Christ. And he would hold these high standards of God's word, of of God's salvation, and really impacted the way that we see Christianity here today in the West. 
And it's incredible the things that Martin Luther did for the gospel. But let me tell you, Martin Luther struggled tremendously with James chapter 2. He's one of the heroes of the faith. Outside of scripture, one of the most influential believers that we can point to today. But he, he, he could not stand the words of James chapter 2 because it seemed like him coming out of a Roman Catholic background, challenging that works does not save you, and and really having his life threatened for the cause of saying, no, it's by faith that we're saved. He would see James chapter 2, and it seems like to Luther that works is what saves you. And so he would call this, in some of his writings in the 1500s, the epistle of straw. I mean, there were times that Martin Luther actually wished that the book of James did not exist at all. Because he's like, this this doesn't make sense to me that I would come out of this Roman Catholic background. And now you're telling me I have to have works. You're telling me I I must have works. And so he he struggled tremendously with these verses. Now I'm going to say something, and I, I feel even weird saying it. Because here we are. We're talking about a hero of the faith. But Luther was wrong. In the way that he, like I said, I feel dirty saying that, okay? But he was wrong. He did a lot of great things for the gospel. We're thankful, but he was wrong on this issue. And he read it wrong because what we're going to see is the context of James chapter 2. And we're going to look at some other places. We're going to figure out how these two things, faith and works, relate to one another. So we have to look at verse 13 of James chapter 2 to understand what's happening in 14 through 19. He says this, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So that's verse 13 of James chapter 2. And then he goes into this understanding of how faith and works relate to one another. Now, what he's saying in 13 is this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been granted incredible mercy by God. You did not get what you deserved. You did not get hell and eternity in hell without Christ. You did not get that. You received mercy from God, which means you've been given grace upon grace upon grace because he has saved you and redeemed you. And so when you understand mercy, when believers in Jesus Christ, when we understand mercy, when we understand grace, the, the outflow of that is when someone has wronged us in some way, the desire of our heart, because we love God and we, because we've been given this level of mercy or grace, we want to extend that to others. And what James is saying is, when you don't want to extend uh, mercy and grace to others, maybe you haven't been given mercy and grace by Jesus. And so he's saying, out of response to the gospel, the way that we see God is really how we're going to respond to others. We're going to want to extend the grace and the mercy that God has given us to others, even those who have wronged us. And so he's saying... So so James is not saying that works gets you faith. Rather, he's saying that true saving faith must produce good works. That's, That's really what he's arguing. And he's arguing this is how a believer will live. A believer will produce good works because they are responding to the gospel. And because of that, they'll want to love others. And so James gives this analogy of 
a brother or sister coming into the assembly or coming into a home, and he says brother and sister because he's saying this is a fellow Christian that you would do life with, that you have, that you do, you worship with, you have church with, all of these things. This is your fellow church friend that has come to you, and they are without food, without clothing, starving, and cold, and they come to you and ask you or tell you their situation, and your response is, you're hungry? Why don't you eat something? Oh, you're, you're cold? Get more clothes on. See you later. And you just send them away. And there's no like provision of, you're hungry, let me feed you. You're, you're cold, let me clothe you. So there's a difference. And, and James is saying, the person who has, says they have faith, but has no works, is like this. And this is a situation that could have happened in this culture, because here you have lots of poor people who were without clothes and were without food. And he's saying believers should take care of one another. And if they don't, if it's just lip service, he says it's a waste. He says, what good is it? And this is why James focuses on, in verse 14, he says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? He's saying, if it's a person who just gives lip service and there's all talk and no real action, he's saying, in the way that they live their life does not reflect the words that they say, he says, what good is that? And this is something that we've got to be careful with at integrity. I'll just be honest. Like, this is something that worries me at integrity, that we would just give lip service every single week when we gather, when we split up in small groups, when we do life. We're just saying the right things. Like, we're a church. We, we love teaching the Bible. I remember I was, I was at a place somewhere in Greenville, and someone said, you're the pastor of the church that teaches the Bible. And I'm like, that should be every church, but okay, we'll take it, Right. Um, and so we want to teach the Bible. We want people to know God's word. We want people to, to, to understand who God is and how sovereign he is and how grand he is. We want a picture of a big God. That's why we teach the Bible and we want to do it well. But here's my danger that someone would come in our midst and do life with us and hear scriptures on Sunday and go live it out during the week in small groups and in homes and we're meeting and they just pick up and they learn how to borrow the lingo. You know what I'm saying? They learn how to say the right things because they hear what we say and they say, that must be right. I will just say that. But it doesn't translate into real life change, which then leads to loving God and loving others. And James says, what good is that? What a lame hobby. That's what he's saying. And I got to tell you, this is something that I, I worry about, that we could just borrow the right language and think that's enough. It's not enough. I remember when I was, um, went to upstate New York a year after high school, I went to a small uh, Christian Bible Institute there for uh, a year, and I was up there um, and trying to fit in. And if you are from eastern North Carolina and you move upstate New York, you are like an alien, all right? Uh, because I moved up there and they began to hear my deep, Rocky Mount, southern um, lingo or whatever you want to call it. And they began to immediately think, I own cows in my backyard. I have chickens and ma, you know, churns the butter and, uh, you know, and where's your overalls? Like, it was just all kinds of 
you know, things that we, they would see. And they just assumed that I was just this redneck hick that didn't know anything. And where's your banjo? You know, like there was just this kind of attitude towards me. And I just really wanted to fit in. And all these guys, man, they're like from New Hampshire, from Vermont, New Jersey, New York. And they all like, they all snowboard, right? And I'm like, we can't snowboard in Rocky Mount, okay? We have icy stuff that falls and schools shut down for like eight weeks, but we don't <laughs> snowboard. But I, I was like, it, it can't be that hard though. And so they're like, ban, you know, we're going to snowboard, you know. They, so they invite me <laughs> to snowboard and I like, do you like to snowboard? I'm like, dude, yes. Yeah. And I just wanted to fit in. And so I just lied to him. And I thought, well, it can't be that hard because I see him do it and potheads do it all the time. It can't be that hard. Um, and so look, I, I, I found my buddies and we were going to go the next day and they were out of the room. And I found like he had stacks and stacks of uh, snowboarding magazines. So I was like, I'll just read up on it. And I'll be good to go. I'll just, I'll borrow the lingo and I'll start to use like different words that they use, like switch foot and all this stuff. I don't know what the words are. I'm just making them up. But I I remember reading these books and going, oh, I've got it. I've got it. I read the books and I was using some of their same terms on the way to the slopes. I get on the slopes. Man, I cannot even stand on that thing. It is hard. And I just looked like a fool. I fell down, rolling down. Yeah, I thought maybe gravity will help me and I'll just move my body a certain way like they do on TV and I'll be fine. It is not that easy. I mean, I rolled down the hill. And what happened was, I thought that me just barring the lingo and me just having the knowledge and the understanding of snowboarding would get me by, but it doesn't. It has to translate into real life application. And this is why it's just dangerous just to have lots of information being downloaded into your brain, but out at translating into real life examples of loving God and loving others. And James says, what good is it? Or another way to translate what good is it is what gain is it? What does it gain? In other words, what do you get out of that type of faith? If you're just grabbing knowledge and understanding, you have just made the Bible an academic book or a textbook. It's just found another way to be an academiac, but it doesn't translate into real heart change. And James would say, what good is it? What gain is it? What do you gain from an empty faith? So he has an empty faith that is one that is what, was, what would be said as faith by itself. And then he has what he would say is a saving faith. And that is faith that is accompanied by good works. And then he says some very harsh things in 17 and 18. Look what he says. Verse 17, so also faith by itself, and it does not have works, it is what? It's dead. Faith without works is dead. This is verse 18. But someone will say, you have to have faith, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So notice what he says, first of all, faith without works, it's, it's simply dead. It's not saving faith. It's dead. And so then you have this rhetorical question of someone who has faith without works, and there's someone who who claims to have works without faith. And so the temptation is, when we see ideas in Scripture like this that are seemingly contrasting, they seemingly contradict, 
what we often try to do is try to find the right balance. You ever hear, hear that? When somebody sees like two contrasting ideas in the Bible, I just want to find the right balance. And you, you, you do it with all kinds of things. Like if you see man's free choice versus God's sovereign plan, we just go, we've got to find the right balance. Or God's love versus God's wrath. We've got to find the right balance of truth and grace or faith and works. We're often trying to find the right balance. And I would argue that's really not the approach is to find and bleed in the right balance between faith and works. What you see in Scripture, when you handle Scripture that has two seemingly contrasting or contrary ideas, the goal is not to find the right balance. The goal is to take both ideas and maximize them both and figure out what Scripture says about both of them. And then, after you've done that, and you really maximize what scripture says about faith and what scripture says about works and we're accountable to both of these things is what James is saying. And then we discover how do they relate? How do they work together? How both of these two things maximize to their, to their ends, how do then do they relate? Because we are absolutely accountable for both of these things. And what you see here is James is not putting together two contrasting ideas, he's actually just saying they're one and the same. They complement one another. Faith and works has to complement one another and relate to one another. So there's a passage here that some will take and they say, this is contrary to what James says in James chapter 2 when he says, faith has to be accompanied by works. And what people often do is they go to Ephesians chapter 2. And they'll explain Ephesians chapter 2 like as Paul is saying something different than what James is saying. But it's important that we understand both and how they both relate. And I, I don't think there's any way that these two are contrary. Actually, I think Paul and James are just saying exactly the same thing, but just in a different way. So Paul writes the book of Ephesians. And he writes to the church of Ephesus. And what's happening in Ephesus is that people are starting to believe that they can attain God's righteousness outside of faith. They believe that they can work for their salvation. And so what Paul is doing is he's arguing against this idea that you cannot obtain the righteousness of God in and of yourself. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that I can do to obtain God's righteousness. There's nothing I can do to be saved, to work for my salvation. Nothing that we can do. And so what James does, or what Paul does, is he's arguing for pre-conversion. There's nothing you can do to be saved in and of yourself. You need Christ. You cannot be saved by your works. Now look what he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verse 8 says this, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. That's good news, right? You've been saved by faith, by a gift that God has given you, right? Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See what he's doing? He's saying, before you get saved, there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor in and of yourself. You cannot work for your salvation. You can come to church all you want to. You can give all you want to. You can go to life groups. You can, you can serve on every team. You can go to the 
the Serve and Missions Expo later tonight and join every single team. And you still, if you don't know Christ, you will die and go to hell. That's what he's saying. Nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. And you even see it more in, in verses 1 through 5 of Ephesians 2. Let me just read those as well. So you can understand the deadness of our state when we are born. We are born dead. I don't know if you know that or not, but this is what he's saying. Ephesians 1, 2 verse 1, he says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once uh, walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan himself, is what he's saying, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we were all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Good word, right? And what he's saying is this. Every single one of us, because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, because of the original sin in the garden, it's been carried on to us. And he says, every single man Every single woman is born dead in your sins. You are a robot to your sins. You can only sin more and more and more. And the good things that you do is only for your own self-righteousness. And it still points back to your sin. You're dead in your sins. And some have the view that God, he wants to save us and we have to meet him halfway. Like we have to reach up and grab him as he's reaching down and then we're saved because it's a little bit of our works, it's a little bit of his, of his grace, but no, we're dead. You don't go past a cemetery and see people's arms sticking up out of the ground. They can't do that because they are dead. And when when. God saves us, it's out of his love that he makes us alive. And that's what salvation is, is him making a dead person alive. So the gospel is not about making a dead person better, it's about making a dead person alive. And so he says, you're dead in your sins. So, So the argument when he brings up later in Ephesians 2 about this issue of can work save you, he's like, You can't do any works because you're dead. So of course works can't save you. That would be ridiculous to say that because you are dead in your sins. And what I'm I'm saying is Paul is arguing pre-conversion works cannot save you. You have to have faith alone in Jesus Christ. Works can't do it. And here's why I think Paul and James are saying the same thing because they're both elevating really the essence of the gospel that Christ came to save sinners. And when he saves us, he makes us different. And this is why he says so clearly, Paul in Ephesians 2.10, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul's just saying pre-conversion, 
nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to be saved from your works. You have to have faith in Christ alone. It's a gift of God. And once you do that, he says, you will have good works. That God has ordained beforehand. So not only has God has chosen you out of his love, he's predestined you. It's Ephesians 1, chapter, verse 4 and 5 and 6. Not only has he done that, but he's also prepared the works that you and I would do beforehand. That's not even just, and he's not talking old lady across the street, just good effort. He's just talking about our obedience to God has been prepared beforehand, that God has, that has predestined us, but he's also given us the means by which we might obey him by giving giving us his Holy Spirit. And so when we have the Holy Spirit, we're going to obey. We're going to walk in a newness of life. And James comes along and says the exact same thing. Faith without works is dead. They must accompany one another. And this isn't just James and Paul talking. This is something that you see throughout the entire New Testament. First John chapter three, verse 16. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's saying, how is this person even a believer if they don't want to love others? They don't have good works. How is he even a believer? Little children, let us not love in word or talk in deed or, or talk, but indeed in truth. So notice what all of them are saying. Paul argues pre-conversion you can't. James says after your conversion, you will. You will follow through with good works. You will desire to obey God. And this all happens after you get saved, you will produce good works. And all of them argue that if you're not producing good works, maybe you don't have saving faith. Because saving, saving faith must show true evidence that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And true evidence is that you just love and obey God because he's Lord over your life. He's your master. And then from that, there's a desire to serve and to love and to care for the needs of others. And James is saying, look, here in this church, we've got people that are hungry people that are without clothes, and if we are truly believers, a desire will be there for us to love these people and not just give lip service, but to love them. And what James is going to say next is literally like punching a Jewish man in the face. Because here he's calling out this whole idea of lip service with no real heart transformation. And he says this in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. And then he sarcastically says this, you do well. Good for you. You believe that God is one. You do well. And what he's saying is this is really a, a Jewish person's kind of mantra that they would say that God is one. It actually comes from Deuteronomy 6.4 where uh, the word of God says, hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is something that a devout Jewish person would say to really proclaim the idea of monotheism, that God is one, that we, have a trini- we believe in a trinity. 
We believe that there's Father, Son, and Spirit, and we believe that they are one. And so that's the idea of monotheism. And they were really slaying that as a slam against people who believed in polytheism. There's many gods. No, there's not many gods. So Israelites would say, we believe that God is one. And they would repeat this over and over again in their prayer books. They would say, God is one. Even devout Jews today, if you meet a devout Jew who's really fallen to the practice of Judaism, what you'll see is they will often uh, proclaim that God is one two to three times a day. In the morning, at night, sometimes in the middle of the day, they will say it every single day that God is one. And James says, Big deal. Your mantra that doesn't lead to real heart change and a real love for God and others is just a mantra. And he goes, in fact, latter part of verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons, even the demons believe and shudder. Is that hard to hear or what? You have this mantra that you say over and over and over again, God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And that's like your statement that you're so proud of. He goes, listen, your statement doesn't go much further than what a demon says about God. A demon believes that God is one. A demon absolutely believes in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are one God. A demon believes in this God in this way. A, a demon believes it, and he shudders. He's, he fears God in this way. A demon has great theology. A demon would be able to take us through the book of James and, and really exegetically explain each word and each meaning and, and every single word. A demon can do that. But what's the difference? A demon doesn't love. A demon doesn't love God. A demon doesn't love others. And a demon is no way a demon can really produce genuine fruit. He's saying, you have great theology, but it doesn't lead to a genuine love for God and a genuine love for others. And James says, it's a demonic faith. It's not a real faith. It's not saving faith. He says it's dead, empty faith because it doesn't produce real fruit. And James is just simply telling his readers that saving faith always produces good works. And this is challenging for us today because we see this church that James is talking to and he wants them to be the real thing. He wants them to say, the Christ that you proclaim in your lips needs to be the Christ that we see in your life. And if we don't see the Christ in your life to being displayed through loving God and loving others, then the Christ that you proclaim with your lips is not real. And I see it all the time because he's really challenging these believers to get into each other's lives about this issue. If you don't see good works in someone, man, challenge them in the gospel. And we have this understanding here in Southern culture where it's like, I have my faith. This is my faith. It's personal. We always say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me just tell you, yes, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it it is yours and it belongs to you, but it's really not that personal. People have to see that Christ is displayed in your life by the way you love God and the way you love others. There's got to be evidence of it. No one's going to listen to you if they just hear you say the word Jesus and you don't live like he's transformed your life. And so faith really isn't that personal. 
People are allowed to ask you questions about your faith in Christ because it should display a real, genuine life change. And it bothers me. I I meet all the time when I meet people that say, I've always been a Christian. You haven't always been a Christian. Paul says, you're dead in your sins. You can't be dead and just always be a Christian. There has to be a point where there's a genuine conversion where you've seen and cherished that Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life. He was born of a virgin. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty of Satan, sin, and death. The penalty that I deserve, Christ took on in human form for me in my place. And if I put my faith and trust in him, if I've repented of my sins, I believe in the gospel, then he'll save me. And there has to be a point when you come to that reality that you actually see life change happen. Because when you believe in Christ, he gives you a new heart. He changes you and you, you become a God lover. From a person who is so, solely self-centered and selfish, you become someone who is selfless and Christ-centered and others-focused. And that's what the change of the gospel does. So you haven't always been a Christian. There's got to be a point in your life where you've responded to the good news of Christ. You've seen the beauty of the gospel and you repented and you believed. And once that happens, there's going to be proof and evidence that you are in fact a God lover because faith without works is dead. And the challenge that I think we have before us is that we're really talking about the difference between true belief and unbelief. People who are deceived because they think they're believers and people who really understand the true gospel and they see it in their life. And I see it all the time with statistics about Christianity. You even remember the famous Gandhi quote, like I would have become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians, right? And we hear those things and we go, man, that's just horrible. He's seen Christians and they've been burned by Christians and he would have become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. And we see these statistics like how marriages in Christian families are no different than marriages in non-Christian families and how they are divorced the same. Like all of them, are, the, the divorce rates are exactly the same. Or we see, meet people that say, I would have been a part of the church, but I was burned by the church. And I'm hurt by the church and I'm wounded by the church because the, the people in the church have hurt me or wounded me. But let me just say this. Maybe the statistics are based on cultural Christians, but not real genuine Christians. Because I'm not going to insult the work of the Holy Spirit in that way. Because man, if there's people that are rampantly getting divorced for whatever reason, there's people that are rampantly hurting people who are a part of the body, and they're probably not even believers. Because they're not producing the good work that Christ has placed us. I'm not saying Christians don't hurt people. I'm not saying Christians don't get divorced. I believe that they do. But I think part of those big, large, sweeping statements, Gandhi and all these people, man, I think Gandhi met people that thought they were Christians and they weren't. Because I think if he would have met a true, authentic believer in Jesus Christ, one that the Holy Spirit has filled their life with joy, love, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He ain't going to say, I would have become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. No, he saw false conversions. And the churches are full of them. 
And so what I don't want to do this morning is I don't want to negate the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we truly become believers because we will be people of faith which will lead to people who love God because faith without works is dead. And faith must accompany good works. And so if we're believers this morning, we really get the gospel. This is why we always tell you to get the gospel because the gospel matters. Getting the gospel right, it matters. Paul says, keep your life and your doctrine closely. That the way that you view God is the most important thing about you because it should translate to life change. And when it does, we will see a city that is different because we become God lovers. We fear God above man and we want to please and love our master and we want to love and serve others and give them the gospel as well. And so my hope is this morning, do our people, does Integrity Church really get the gospel where it translates and changes us to love God and love others? Do you have real faith or do you have just a demonic faith? Maybe some of you are just here just because you like to get your head full of knowledge and information. And I'm just telling you, you've got a lame hobby. You need Christ. You need Christ to redeem you and change you because that's why we teach this stuff. We want you to know it so you can be transformed by the gospel, so you can have the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you can make an impact on the world for the gospel. And that's our hope this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before you this morning because our works, Lord, did not save us.